This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. And so I would just like to turn our attention now to immigration. It's probably of, of the, the four topics, the, the one that's the hottest in terms of in the news the most. And um, I would like to uh, call our moderator, Professor Rick Valdez from is it, uh, University of Hawaii, a sociologist who will lead us off. So, thanks. All right, thanks and welcome. Um, as Hazel just suggested, the immigration panel is a very uh, timely uh, topic. For instance, you can't watch a presidential debate without hearing a discussion about immigration policy and um, problems associated with immigration. You can't watch Lou Dobbs. It's like a train wreck. I don't want to watch it, but I can't turn it off. Um, but, um, you know, a kind of crusader against um, immigration. And I think one of the challenges for people like me and our panelists who work in this field is how to uh, explain how race is part of this discussion about immigration, even though it's not usually explicitly drawn upon by anti-immigration activists, right? So instead of using old-style uh, exclusionary racial language, uh, they use terms that are seemingly race-neutral, like border integrity, right? This is a seemingly uh, race-neutral um, a term, and sort of one of the key words or key phrases of the anti-immigration uh, movement, uh, but is border integrity truly a, a racially or race-neutral term? And I, I think it offers us an opening if we think historically about uh, a parallel. Um, if people are familiar with um, the famous landmark Supreme Court decision, Loving versus State of Virginia, right? The Supreme Court ruling that overturned uh, anti-miscegenation laws in the U.S. Um, if you remember the details from that case, uh, the couple, uh, Richard Loving and Mildred Jeter, uh, lived in the state of Virginia and were accused of violating Virginia's anti-miscegenation statute, which was called the Racial Integrity Act. If you remember, but a number of, of anti-miscegenation laws had similar kinds of, of names. Um, and uh, the, the aim of uh, miscegenation laws in the U.S. were, were fairly uh, uniform across uh, different states, which, is, which was to protect the white community or insulate the white community from unwelcome or unregulated associations with people whom they considered their racial inferiors, right? Blacks, Filipinos, uh, Native Americans. Uh, and these sorts of statutes were always defended as egalitarian, right? Because it didn't just forbid blacks from marrying whites, or so they claim, but it also forbade whites from marrying blacks. That's how they were egalitarian. Um, so um, another part of this kind of anti-immigration discourse uh, also can be traced back to that kind of discussion about miscegenation laws. Uh, the idea that people who crossed racial boundaries in search of romance or intimacy were race traitors, right? And if we watch Lou Dobbs, for instance, uh, or people of that, of that uh, ilk, they often talk about this evil group in the U.S. or in other places called the Open Borders Movement. You might have heard of these evildoers. Um, and these people are a different kind of traitor, right? They're traitors to the nation. They want to open up 
the borders of the nation, like people wanted to open up the boundaries of interracial uh, uh, romance in the past, and they want to dilute the strain uh, and the strength of our nation by allowing an inferior group to enter into um, the national community, right? So I think this idea of, of integrity, whether it be racial or border integrity, um, there's a kind of genealogy there uh, that's important. So our three speakers today are going to talk about a broad range of issues related to immigration debate and policy. Um, our first speaker, we're going to go in order in the program, is Tomas Jimenez from UC San Diego. Um, our second speaker is going to be Bill Ong Hing from UC Davis, Asian American Studies and the Law School, right? And uh, Jay Sri. Sri Kantia. I told her I'd mangle her name and I just did, so I'm guilty of that. Um, and we're going to hope that everyone's going to stay around 20 minutes and then we're going to have a lot of good time for good discussion. All right, so Tomas, take it away. This thing should come on in a second here. Good afternoon. Um, I feel compelled, as everyone else has done, to tell their Stanford story. Uh, I did not go to Stanford as an undergrad. I went to a little college down the road called Santa Clara. Uh, but I, um, I spent a summer here at Stanford about uh, 11 years ago, along with Marcela Muniz, who's now getting her PhD here in a program called the Irvine Fellows Program for Future PhDs. And Al Camarillo is our fearless leader then, and so I owe him a debt of gratitude for not only informing me about uh, graduate school then, but he, I also had a very uh, informative conversation with him before I started my research, and now I'm here back uh, sharing with uh, him and you some of what I learned. So um, I want to acknowledge Al, even though I don't actually see him, but you can tell him that I've acknowledged him. So, um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, some research I've done, as soon as I find a spot for this, on the Mexican origin population, and what I want to do is um, talk about uh, why immigration patterns matter, why the duration of an immigration wave matters. And I want to do this by talking about the European origin case and then talking about the Mexican origin case, but then I want to go beyond the Mexican origin case and, uh, and speak a little bit about, um, in particular, Polish Americans and later generation Chinese and Japanese Americans. And then this is an interdisciplinary conference, I want to talk about uh, how some of the um, things that I'm talking about with respect to the European origin groups and, and Mexican-Americans might uh, matter for research on things like law and policy uh, and politics and racial attitudes. And, and it occurred to me actually as I was sitting in the audience to, to, uh, to um, give a brief introduction to some terminology here. In sociology, we use the term assimilation quite readily, and it's not, we don't use it as a, uh, an ideological term, it's a social scientific term. Some people prefer integration, uh, some people prefer incorporation, but I'm using it here as a social scientific term, and we can talk about that later if you want. So before, I don't want everyone to get turned off as soon as I say the word assimilation, so I thought I'd start with that. And so, um, in talking about how immigration patterns matter to race and ethnicity in the United States, we have to go back to early studies of uh, immigration, of assimilation of race and ethnicity. And the story here is a familiar one. It's a story of assimilation that we all know well. It's a story that 
starts for the most part with Southern and Eastern European immigrants who came to the United States predominantly uh, before and shortly after the turn of the century. These were people who, um, much of the historical research shows, um, were regarded as racially inferior, as people who threatened the American gene pool, although there are some folks in the audience who say they were, they were white on arrival. And, uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, a lot of the research shows, nonetheless, I think we can take from this that uh, they were a despised population, not wholly welcomed. But over the course of three generations, a lot changed. Each new generation born in the United States showed upward socioeconomic mobility, showed a great deal of residential assimilation. Uh, as Rick spoke of, there's a great deal of intermarriage among these European origin groups. And all of this was part of a larger process that found these groups white on the other end, a process of assimilation uh, across generations, normally three generations where they became white. And so in the later generation, the folks who are the, whose families have been in the United States for multiple generations, ethnicity took on a particular form. And it's a, for, a form that Herb Gans describes as symbolic. Uh, Mary Waters says this ethnicity can be invoked optionally and without consequence. It's tied to a nostalgic notion of immigration. It's a type of ethnicity that people celebrate as kind of a leisure pastime. We feel really Italian when we eat pasta and Irish when we drink beer on St. Patrick's Day, but ethnicity doesn't really shape the way we see the world, nor does it shape uh, the way people treat us in a negative sense. And so this is a symbolic form of ethnicity. And this symbolic form of ethnicity, its development, I think follows nicely the history of the preeminent symbol of Amer American immigration, and that's Ellis Island. And if you look here in the picture of Ellis Island's Great Hall, around the turn of the century. It's a bustling point of entry. Thousands of Southern and Eastern European immigrants filing through on their way to various places throughout the United States. But then in 1954, Ellis Island closes. Ellis Island remains for many decades, for several decades, uh, an empty, a decaying relic of American immigration, largely forgotten. And then in 1990, with the help of Lee Iacocca and some others, Ellis Island opens up as a museum, a museum that celebrates our uh, nation's immigration history. But I think these theories of assimilation, the story of assimilation as it's largely been told, misses something very important. And it misses this, or at least de-emphasizes this far too much. And that's that European immigration stopped. European immigration stopped. So in, in, in the 1920s, uh, well, let's go back before that. World War II, restrictive immigration laws passed in the 19-teens and 1920s, the Great Depression, World War II, all conspired to end European immigration. And so what that meant is that there was no subsequent or significant European immigration to replenish or to refresh ethnicity. Each new generation that came of age in American society grew up in an American society where their ethnic background was characterized less by immigrants of the same ethnic origins and more by American-born people of the same ethnic origin. So what's immigration got to do with it as far as race and ethnicity goes? If, if ethnicity takes on this kind of symbolic and optional and inconsequential form when immigration stops, what happens when it keeps on going? And this is the, the primary driving question of my research and I looked at this question using the Mexican origin population, in particular, looking at those later generation Mexican-Americans who descend from 
the earliest Mexican immigrants. And we can start to get an answer to this question of what happens when immigration keeps going by looking at another well-known immigration gateway in American society, and that's the border crossing at San Diego, Tijuana, which is about 25 miles from where I live. And in many ways, it's like uh, Ellis Island in that in the early part of the century, you have folks filing through Tijuana, San Diego on their way to the United States. If you go to the 40s and 50s, you still have people filing through Tijuana, San Diego on their way to the United States. And if you go to the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even now, this border crossing is nothing uh, like Ellis Island is today. It's not, uh, it does nothing to honor past waves of Mexican immigrants. It does nothing to, uh, to celebrate our nation's immigration history. In fact, it's the busiest port of entry in the entire world. And why is that? Why is that? Well, that's because Mexican immigration has been ongoing for about 100 years with only a brief interruption in the 1930s. And here what you have is a graph with the number of foreign-born individuals from Mexico and selected European countries over the course of the 20th century. And I'll direct your attention here to the solid line where you see Mexican immigration sort of take off at the beginning of the 20th century. You had mass deportations here in the 1930s. And then immigration, Mexican immigration resumes its increase and then skyrockets. In the meantime, European origin countries represent uh, less and less uh, a part of America's immigration stream. And so I think immigration replenishment, or at least the duration of an immigration wave, is a really big deal. And this, is, this continuous immigration, this replenishment of an immigrant population has made for a Mexican-American population that is incredibly diverse in many respects, not the least of which in its generational profile. Now, despite what, uh, despite sort of common sense understandings of the Mexican origin population, they are not all immigrants, nor are they all even children of immigrants. In fact, about a third of the Mexican origin population traces their roots back three generations or more in the United States. And this is the group that I'm interested in. And so I designed a research project to look at the experiences of these later generation Mexican Americans. Again, I want to emphasize, these are not folks who trace their immigrant roots back just a few decades. These are people whose families mostly came in the 19-teens and 1920s. And so, in many ways, given the European origin case and what we know of later generation ethnic identity, we might expect some uh, ethnicity to be a symbolic part of their identity for later generation. And I went to, an, uh, I investigated this question uh, using uh, 123 interviews with Mexican Americans in Garden City, Kansas, the first place you all think of when you think of Mexican Americans. <laughs> in Santa Maria, California, and in the interest of time, I'm not going to talk a great deal about methodology. We can if you want in the question and answer. And what I found is that, um, among the things that I found, was that uh, ongoing immigration um, makes for an experience of ethnic identity that is not symbolic, that is not inconsequential for people of Mexican descent. That Mexican immigrant replenishment means that ethnicity maintains its fervor. And we see its fervor come to life in the lives of these people that I interviewed in a couple ways. And the intergroup boundaries that they experience, that is, boundaries between them as people of Mexican descent and non-Mexicans, but also boundaries that knife through the Mexican origin population along 
generational lines. I'll tell you about each of those things. And I, just to kind of give a definition of ethnic boundaries, you can read the formal definition if you want. Suffice to say is that ethnic boundaries are everyday ways that we distinguish between us and them, everyday ways that we recognize group distinctions. Now, it's important to acknowledge, since, um, since I do draw on the European or origin case as a comparison, that there are a number of important differences between the European origin case and the Mexican origin case. Uh, the Mexican-American population has its origins in the United States in colonization. As many people say, the border crossed them. Um, the proximity of Mexico to the United States is obviously very close, much different than traveling across an ocean. The Mexican immigrant population is incredibly large uh, and also incredibly unique in its character in that there's a large undocumented population. And so I want to acknowledge these things, but I really want to focus on this last thing. And, and it's one thing that I think that makes the Mexican origin population incredibly unique, and that's that its immigration uh, history spans every period of immigration in uh, modern American history. The classical period, which is dominated by European immigrants, a wave that some people, or a period that some people describe as a hiatus, and then this post-65 immigration. And I also want to point out, uh, before kind of jumping into some of the findings here, that um, there's a lot of evidence of a story of assimilation that is fairly reminiscent of the European origin group. The folks I interviewed, and they are not uh, a unique with respect to other Mexican-Americans, are not a population relegated to the margins of American society. These are not people relegated to a barrio. These are not people who are entirely disenfranchised, uh, lots of intermarriage, upward mobility, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's important to point that out um, before proceeding. So first I want to talk about how immigrant replenishment affects uh, intergroup boundaries, those boundaries between people of Mexican origin and non-Mexicans. And I want to race through one aspect of this and then focus more on race, since I think you'll find that interesting and it intersects more with the theme of this, uh, this conference. Um, so people of Mexican origin in the United States today uh, have become racialized as largely a foreign group, and this is a product of their large numbers, their concentration in low-wage work, and socio-cultural differences from the majority population. And so oftentimes, as you've seen in the newspapers, as you've seen in political debates, uh, nativism is directed at those Mexican immigrants, the foreign-born among the Mexican origin population, but it's often pitched in a racialized language that seemingly directs nativism at anyone who is of Mexican descent. And you see this in public uh, pronouncements about a Mexican problem in Santa Maria, for example, through interpersonal interactions that my respondents have with non-Mexicans. And this has the cumulative effect of bolstering ethnic boundaries. It makes ethnicity anything but symbolic and optional for these folks. Uh, but I want to talk about how immigration, immigrant replenishment informs notions of race. And this might be a banal point to this group, but race gets its meaning from the context in which it's situated and in a context of heavy Mexican immigration, skin color, and in some cases names, first and last names, are cues for not just ancestry, not just where your ancestor come from, but also where you might have been born and even whether or not you have legal papers. And so Mexican Americans with dark skin, when they do experience discrimination, it's oftentimes, most oftentimes, related to notions that they are immigrants, they are tagged as foreigners. And I want to read you a quote that illustrates this. This is a, a gentleman I interviewed who's a high school teacher. 
He's middle class. He, uh, in fact, he bragged about this enormous home that he owns. He's, uh, he's intermarried. His wife is white. Um, and he owns a rental property in San Luis Obispo, which is, again, another kind of signal of his middle class status. And he was doing some yard work at his property and driving on his way home. This is what uh, he reported. He's get, he gets pulled over and he says to me, that's this guy with a Smokey the Bear hat and wraparound glasses. It's La Mira. It's the INS, the Border Patrol. So I get out of my car and the guy says, vete aquí. And I go, oh no. And I'm laughing. And I come over and I say, may I help you? He says, do you speak English? I said, what the hell do you think I just said? <laughs> he said, do you have some ID? I said, what the hell do you want to know if I have ID for? I wasn't going past the speed limit. Besides, you're, a co you're not a cop. You're the Border Patrol. All right, I'll play your game. He said, do you have some ID? So I pull driver's license and I show him my wallet. Do you have something else? I said, yeah. So I showed him my social security card. He wanted to reach for it and I go, uh-uh, you ain't getting this. Forget it. Forget that. He goes, do you have anything else? So I go, sure I do. So I pull out my American Express card and it's green. And I said, don't leave home without it. This is harassment. <laughs> Guilt by association. A Mexican, Amer Mexican needing a haircut and a shave on a Friday afternoon with a bandana around his neck with an old pickup truck loaded with mowers and edgers and stuff like that. Now, this is perhaps the most extreme case that I encountered, but it's emblematic of everyday instances in which people of Mexican descent are often, later generation Mexican-Americans are often tagged as foreigners. And as I mentioned, these boundaries that I talk about often uh, knife through the Mexican origin population. They often highlight boundaries between people of Mexican descent based on how long they've been in the United States. And these ethnic expectations become uh, clear through the, I'm sorry, these um, intergroup boundaries become clear through what you might call ethnic expectations. Immigrant replenishment reflects notions about what it means to be authentically Mexican, what it means to be a real ethnic person of Mexican descent. And these uh, boundaries are, and these uh, notions are largely informed by the immigrant population. And so these intergroup boundaries emerge when Mexican-Americans whose families have been here for three, four, five generations are often unable to live up to these expectations and they're regarded as inauthentic. And these authenticating criteria most often involve uh, things like language, who you hang out with, what kind of tastes you have for popular culture, and so forth. But language is the big deal. Language is the big deal. And I'll read a quote that illustrates what a lot of my respondents told me. This is a woman who I interviewed uh, who's a high school student. She said, they asked me, are you white? And I'm like, no, because I don't speak Spanish. And at this school, like if you speak Spanish, then you're Mexican. And if you don't, then you're white. Because I don't know, they're just like, what are you? They asked, like, are you half white? And like if I told them, yeah, I'm half white, they'd believe me. And it's like, no. And then I do tell them that I'm full Mexican. And they're like, nah. -uh. They're like, you're lying. And then they ask, do you know Spanish? And it's like, no. And then they think that it's so wrong that I don't know Spanish. <laughs> I tried to kind of give that 16-year-old inflection, I hope. I don't know, if that, that probably says more about me than it does her. But. <laughs> um. So I want to take this beyond the Mexican origin case, and I'm happy to talk about the findings in more detail and question and answer. Um, and what I want to emphasize is that I think that the duration of an immigration wave is key to understanding processes of assimilation. And we can think of processes of assimilation as a decline in those ethnic boundaries. And I want to kind of show you its application beyond the Mexican origin case by looking at a couple of other cases. The first is later generation Japanese and Chinese Americans. Now, this is a population that um, came to the United States, in fact, in some cases, well before those Eastern and Southern European immigrants started coming. 
but that didn't really experience any immigrant replenishment from the same national origin, at least not to a, to a large degree. But, but uh, Asian immigration is prominent in today's uh, wave of immigration. In fact, roughly two-thirds of the entire Asian origin population in the United States is foreign-born. And so it could be said that while uh, later generation Japanese and Chinese Americans don't experience this kind of replenishment of ethnic stuff like language, particularly in the case of the Japanese, they experience a sort of co-racial co immigration from Asia. And this co-racial immigration from Asia means that those intergroup boundaries that I talked about are prominent. And Mia Tuan's research shows us quite uh, well that um, respondents are often asked where they're from, no, where are you really from? Uh, all too often, they're expected to carry the characteristics of the immigrant generation, again, based on notions that all Asians are foreign. The Polish case in Chicago is also uh, illustrative of, um, of uh, immigrant replenishment and the way it affects race and ethnicity. Um, ongoing, ongoing Polish immigration has taken place to Chicago in roughly three waves, um, coming sort of at the turn of the century, uh, during and after World War II, and then um, political and economic uh, immigrants in the 70s and 80s. And Mary Patrice Erdman shows that um, there are serious um, intergroup boundaries that emerge over what it means to be a real person of Polish descent, particularly as it relates to how they advocate for the fall, or to how they advocate for um, sort of an, a new anti-communist regime in Poland, but they don't experience much of those intergroup boundaries that we talked about, largely because this population has now been racialized as white. And so, um, given that this is a uh, an audience that is uh, diverse in many respects, not the least of which in our disciplinary perspectives, I wanted to kind of um, talk about or leave with you, leave you with how this might relate to some of the topics that uh, many of us research. And the first would have to do with politics. And these are kind of, I'm, I'm trying to be provocative here, so, um, so bear with me. Um, so how does immigration shape racial and ethnic politics today? We often talk about there being a Latino politics or an Asian politics. How would, that politi how would those politics look different if there were no post-65 immigration? Would there even be a Latino politics without Mexican immigration or Latino immigration today? Would there be an Asian American politics without Asian immigration today, or how would it look different? In terms of research on policy and, uh, and legal issues, policies that uh, address e uh, racial inequality were designed during a low point of immigration. The 1960s was, was the low point of immigration, including for people of Mexican descent. And so how does immigration factor into justifications for race-based policies aimed at remedying racial inequality? How should they factor into their implementation? Um, how does immigration change uh, the meaning of race compared to how it was conceived in the 1960s. And then with respect to racial attitudes, to what degree, and this is of course a nod to, to my good friend Larry Bobo, uh, to what degree are racial attitudes about Latinos and Asians driven by the foreign-born members of these groups? And again, I pose the question of a kind of counterfactual. How would uh, Asians and Latinos be regarded in the United States today if there were no post-65 immigration? And so I'll leave you with those uh, nuggets of things that I hope you find somewhat interesting. Um, and I'll turn it back over to Rick to introduce our next speaker. Thank you.
wasn't going to get up, but I, okay, I won't. Um, To speak into the mic? I will. Rick asked me to speak about immigration policy, and uh, you know that's a pretty tall order, and I'll do the best I can. But we we know, of course, that this is a we're a nation of immigrants, but we're also a nation that loves to debate immigration policy. And uh, the uh, I, I'm I'm not going to talk much about history, but know this that that race has been, in my opinion, the primary factor that has dictated what immigration policies have been in force um, since the first immigration laws were actually enacted. Sure, there's, there's been enactments that relate to uh, what, what political opinions people might have. Sure, there's been policies that have been enacted with respect to whether or not folks are communists. Sure, there's been policies enacted with respect to sexual preference. but. Um, but the driving force behind most immigration policies that in my view frames what the United States is uh, in terms of its racial and ethnic makeup uh, deals with racial provisions in the immigration laws that exist even today. There, we know that, uh, that there's something wrong with immigration policies when the way that immigration policy are, policies are enforced today result in in efforts that, in my view, uh, are, are counter to the types of principles that we ought to support as Americans. We know there's a problem when we have a, uh, when the method by which we enforce the Mexico-U.S. border uh, comes in the form of what many people call Operation Gatekeeper. The, the theory being that if we close off the parts of the border that are the easiest to traverse, that Mexicans will not come to the United States illegally. And we know that that's, that calculation is, is enormously wrong. And we know that in fact, uh, for some reason, and we can talk a little bit about this later, Mexicans continue to come into the country without inspection. And they attempt to come at some of the worst parts of the border, in the heat of the summer in Arizona, uh, in the dead cold of the winter, in difficult mountainous terrain uh, to the point that on average one person a day dies along that border. More than 3,000 people have died along the U.S.-Mexico border by natural causes because of these efforts to enter. We know, I, I think there's something wrong with our policies when, when we know that that's going to occur, yet we continue to maintain that type of enforcement effort. We also know there's something wrong when when two young college students would volunteer a couple of years ago to, uh, to provide water to people that are dying in the desert of Arizona, not to transport them, but to provide water uh, if they need water and a sandwich if they need food. Uh, and and they were under specific instructions by the organization with, with whom they worked uh, to not transport anyone because everyone knew that you can't pick up an undocumented immigrant. Uh, and, the Border Patrol knew this. The Border Patrol knew about this volunteer program. Yet one day, these two young college students came across two people that were dying. They were literally dying. And so they called their supervisors who transferred them to doctors at the emergency room. And the emergency room doctor said, you know, you've got to get those people here. They're dying. So they put them in their marked van. The Border Patrol saw them 
followed them to the ER, uh, the, uh, the, the lives of those individuals were saved by this effort. A couple days later, when those individuals were semi-recuperated, they were deported from the United States by the Border Patrol, which is no surprise. But what was surprising was that a couple days after that, those two young college students, David Strauss and, and Shanti Sells, were prosecuted uh, for illegal transportation of, of undocumented immigrants. In my opinion, there's something wrong when that's the way we enforce our immigration laws. I think there's something wrong when, when we welcome into the country refugees over a period of time uh, from countries such as Cambodia and Vietnam. When, when a young man might enter the country at, at the age of six months and be placed as part of our refugee resettlement program in the inner city housing project of Seattle. And that person grows up in the inner city. That person grows up poor. That person grows up getting beat up. That person grows up defending himself. That person grows up coalescing with others who feel the same way that he does. In essence, becoming a gang member. That person pulls a gun. That person shoots. That person gets prosecuted for an armed robbery or a shooting and gets sent to jail and spends five years in jail. But that may be something that we can accept after that person gets out of jail, however. That person then gets deported to Cambodia for having grown up in our inner, inner city. There's something wrong with our immigration policies when that's what it's about. There's something wrong with our immigration policies and the way we enforce them when the ICE, what used to be INS, or the Border Patrol, stations themselves at school bus stops and ask parents who are dropping off their, parent, their kids for school for their documentation. There's something wrong when those, some of those parents are arrested and the children are left at the bus stop. Is that what we are about as a nation when it comes to immigration policies? I hope not. The, this, much of the debate, of course, today is about Mexican migration, but it's not only about Mexican migration, although that is primarily what I'm going to focus on. But I, I have to remind us, of course, that September 11th was uh, 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 one of these defining moments in immigration policies, of all things, uh, that, that changed the nature of the debate. And, but it demonstrated also, September 11th gave license to the new, what then was developed, the Department of Homeland Security, and it gave license to the anti-immigrant crowd to invoke a new anti-immigrant rhetoric. It was subsequent to September 11th that Lou Dobb appeared. It was subsequent to September 11th that Tom Tancredo appeared and was able to form a coalition of over 100 members of Congress in his anti-immigration network. Um, and, and September 11th also showed us that this wasn't about Mexican migration solely. It was something about the other, and the other included people of Muslim and Arab and South Asian descent. It was about rounding up thousands of individuals um, and, and, and enforcing laws in a manner uh, that under the Patriot Act, uh, and I think Jayshree is going to talk more about this, uh, it li gave license to, to focus and, in, and engage in um, uh, that, not, not only that type of racial profiling, but giving license to, to private individuals private citizens of the United States who saw what was happening and then they themselves uh, take part in what I, in what I call the de-Americanization of, of people. Uh, 
when, when a Chinese person like myself, this actually happened to me, this happens to me often actually, and I, I don't have a big mouth usually, but I, I, I often walk down the street and people tell me to go back to China. You know, I was born in Arizona, I tell them. Um, the, uh, but, but that type of de-Americanization effort licensed people to engage in what I call vigilante racism. They privately feel that they are out to enforce immigration policies. So the, the debate that we have witnessed uh, the last couple of years where, there's, where we've had um, front page stories about immigration policy debates is one that, that we might wonder why is it so difficult to come up with a policy that responds to the fact that we have in our community apparently, no one knows for sure, estimates of 10 to 12 million undocumented immigrants to the United States, a large proportion of, of whom uh, are Mexican. One response to that that we hear is we need to round them up and deport them. My response to that is why are they here? Why do they come? Uh, we've got to be smarter than just a round them up type of mentality. Now, there are uh, classically what's offered uh, as the three types of responses to undocumented migration is one, as I said, round them up and deport them. And, and, and the truth is that, uh, that at the rate that ICE actually can operate, it would probably take about 60 to 80 years to do that, okay? Uh, uh, secondly, the other thing you could do is ignore the problem and do nothing. Um, and politically, that's sort of what has happened in the last 20 years, and that might go on for another 20 years. Uh, but uh, probably not. Probably in 2009, after the, the new president takes office, they'll bring up the agenda again. The third thing that, that one can do is grant these individuals amnesty and, uh, or legalization. And, and in order to do that, of course, you've got to convince what I consider a small but very vocal minority uh, of people that they are wrong and that politicians ought to be courageous and step forward and, and actually do the right thing when it comes to that. And I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. The fourth thing actually that, that President Bush has come up with, he's added a new solution, he added it um, over the last several years as a guest worker program. And, and I must say, if you don't have anything better to do sometime, you should Google his, his Rose Garden speech when he first announced his guest worker program. It was January, about four years ago. And, it was one of the most wonderful pro-immigrant speeches that I have ever read that any president has ever articulated. I wish I had written that speech for him. And, um, and, and yet what, he, what we have is a president who, who is willing to go along with comprehensive immigration reform uh, and now presumably a democratically controlled Congress that is also willing to go along with, with immigration reform, yet nothing has occurred. And the reason that nothing has occurred is because, as I said, there is this small group of people that have been able to control the debate. I honestly don't think that they represent the majority of Americans. Now, problem, and, and Hillary ran into this problem the other night when, it, when she was talking about driver's licenses. The problem is that when you, when you talk about immigration policy, it is complicated. There honestly is not a right or a wrong, an absolutely black and white method of dealing with the problem. It's more complicated than that. 
you, but you can't give that kind of nuanced uh, answer to the question without people taking pot shots at you. Because, for example, I don't buy the line that, that no Americans would take any of the jobs that undocumented immigrants hold. That, that simply isn't true. I mean, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, but that's not true entirely. And, and we've, got to, to dis, we've got to discuss that openly and figure out where is the economic competition that's going on. I don't believe, for example, that, that the best thing would be to open up the border uh, and allow as many Mexicans who want to come across the border to enter. I actually don't believe that that would be the best thing, not just from an anti-immigrant perspective, but I actually don't think that that's the best for Mexico as well. And I don't think that Mexico wants that or that Mexicans want that. Uh, and, but yet, my friends in the immigrant rights community, which I consider myself a member, uh, it, it's very difficult to have very strategic, nuanced conversations on many of these issues uh, without your being painted in a, into a particular kind of corner. And, 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 that's, and that's a problem. And that is what has happened with the immigration debate the last couple of years. Unfortunately, politicians today, um, who many of whom we know believe that they cannot be reelected if they are viewed soft on crime, they, many believe that they won't get reelected if they are viewed soft on illegal immigration. And, and that's something that we have to disabuse them of, that in fact, there are smart ways of doing this. Now, to me, when you begin to analyze why are there, why is there this constant flow of immigrants, especially from Mexico, that come into the United States, uh, it, it, it shouldn't, it doesn't take a brain surgeon actually to figure that out. It honestly doesn't. Well, for one thing, you, you can talk to people and, and you can ask them not only why they're here, and they'll tell you most of them are here to work, uh, but if you go beyond that, where were they working before or what were their job opportunities before? And if you draw the lines to, to what the answer to that is, you begin to have these aha moments. And let me just give you one example. One example is NAFTA. Okay, and NAFTA, as many of us probably know, uh, was pushed through by a really complicated coalition of, of politicians uh, and uh, was supported by the first George Bush and President Clinton. It was supported by Dianne Feinstein, but also right-wing Republicans. Uh, and so, well, she's sort of right-wing anyway, but uh, Barbara Boxer supported it too. And the, so you begin to wonder what happened, and, and why is it that it was mostly multinational corporations that were supporting NAFTA? And why wasn't there a labor migration provision in NAFTA? Why was it all limited to commodities and the flow of goods, unlike the European Union, where their agreements include the free flow of labor? Why not? Why didn't that happen? And why is it that the defenders of NAFTA today are mostly multinational corporations and not so much the people, not so much the unions or the workers in those countries? Why is it that Mexican farmers can no longer produce corn? Why is it that Mexican people import their corn from the United States today? You begin to realize that part of NAFTA did not preclude 
federal farm subsidies to U.S. agriculture to produce corn. And those farmers in Mexico could no longer compete because they don't have the same kind of subsidies as U.S. farmers do. So you begin to wonder why Mexican farmers come to the United States to look for work? Give me a break. Why is it that when, when, European, when the European Union feared, you know, Ireland, that Irish, the poor Irish people were going to all flood to the wealthier parts of Ireland, I mean to the Eastern European, European Union when, when, when they were welcomed in. Why, why didn't that ultimately happen? When I was a, a, a young legal aid attorney uh, in the 1970s, I was basically the public defender that represented, for a period of time, for two years, I was the only person that represented indigents who were arrested by the Immigration Service. And a third of my caseload was Mexican. A third of my caseload was a sort of combination of Asians and Nigerians. And a third of my caseload were Europeans. They were young Europeans who were coming to the United States. And when they were in detention, what they wanted was a free ticket back home. And a lot of them were from Ireland. Because, and it turns out that one of the largest undocumented populations in the country were Irish for a long period of time. Why did that all change? Why, did, why wasn't there a flood of of Portuguese and Spanish people that flooded into the wealthier parts of the European Union because of adhesion funds, because of investments in those countries prior to their admission into the European Union. Now, I know that there's not a perfect analogy between those countries and poor Eastern European countries and how they're being prepared for, to be brought into the EU. I know it's not a perfect analogy with the United States and Mexico, but you know what? There's lessons to be learned. We sh we sh we know that some efforts have worked in Mexico with respect to educational investments, with respect to other infrastructure investments. There, ain't, there isn't a highway that, tr that goes from the southern part of Mexico to the northern part of Mexico. There aren't the kinds of health uh, programs that we would want, that, that the types of employment that's being created is primarily in the, in the, in, in, in the uh, the larger metropolitan areas of Mexico, not the poor parts of Mexico. Yes, it might take billions of dollars to invest in a manner that, that I'm contemplating, but that's what it took in the European Union. And when those gates opened, there was not a flood of low-wage workers from those other countries. And the reason I think that that's actually what something that Mexico wants is because Mexico wants to be itself. If you interview Mexican workers, if they were able to get $20, $25 an hour the way Iraqis are getting paid to rebuild their country with American dollars, they would stay home. They would go back. I, 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 the other part of this aha moment is January 2005. January 2005 was when the International Microfibers Agreement uh, uh, came to an end. What was that? That was the, the prohibition, that was the limitation on the number of garments and other types of goods that could be manufactured goods that could enter the United States in limited quantities. In January 2005, those were all lifted so that, so that unlimited numbers of clothes and other manufactured goods could enter from you know where, China. Now, if you realize what's happened since January 2005, there are manufacturing companies in Mexico that can no longer compete. They can't compete with China. Uh, and so they're closing. So where do their workers look to? They look outside of Mexico. My friends, 
we should be smart about the need for us to look at the so-called solution to immigration policy in a regional manner. This isn't about the United States on its own anymore. This is about the United States in this part of the world and, and Mexico and Canada and perhaps other parts of Latin America. This is about, about us, even if you just looked at it in economic terms, beginning to compete with the European Union, beginning to compete with China and industrializing India. Uh, we, would, we are shooting ourselves in the foot if we continue to, for some strange reason to look at Mexico as an enemy. We treat the border as if it's a border with an enemy, when in fact Mexico has been one of our strongest allies, maybe not with respect to Iraq, but everything else, Mexico has been our ally. And it's time that we get a grip on ourselves and stop wasting our time debating immigration policy and spending our time figuring out how we can engage our neighbors in a manner that makes sense for this part of the world. Thanks. Okay, our final speaker is Jay Sri Srikantaya. Let me say your name right. Srikantaya. Thank you. So thank you so much. Is this on? Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to speak today. This is a really great panel, and I'm so glad that CCSRE is having a panel on immigration uh, to allow this kind of discussion. Um, I very much enjoyed presenting last year uh, when CCSRE sponsored um, a university-wide class on immigration, which was fabulous. Uh, what I'm going to do today is focus a little bit more narrowly on one topic in immigration that I think illustrates some of the tensions that we've heard about so far on this panel, and that is immigration detention. Immigration detention is one of those topics that doesn't get that much media attention typically until very recently when conditions have become so egregious that we've heard about children being detained without access to their parents. We've heard about people who are detained with life-threatening illnesses and aren't guaranteed access to medical treatment. And some of these most more egregious stories are making their way to the media. But actually, it's been a problem for a long time. And one thing that I find very interesting is when we see stories about Abu Ghraib and about other detention facilities around the world, such as they are, um, it's incredibly disturbing. And one of the pictures that I still remember from the CNN uh, videos was that of a German shepherd kind of jumping up um, and trying to sort of attack a detainee. That happens here in California. You don't have to go all the way to Iraq to see that kind of treatment of people being held without criminal charges in administrative detention by our government. And so that's why I'm going to focus on this topic. This is a population that's the fastest growing federal prison population. It's a population of mostly men of color. And it's a population that has been stigmatized by two different kinds of labels that really are indicative of how we form our immigration policy. One label is our assumption that immigrants are criminals. And another is our assumption more recently after September 11, as Bill mentioned, um, this association between immigrant and terrorist. And both of those associations really define and form the background and the purpose in some ways of our immigration detention policies. What I'm going to do is tell you a little bit more about immigration detention, what's happening, what is it, who's detained, where are they, and then I'll talk a little bit about 
the tensions created by these detention policies in a few different ways, especially against the background of uh, longstanding immigration law and policy. So immigration detention. As I mentioned, it's administrative detention. That means that when we normally think of somebody being put in prison, we think of the person as, as having, before they're put into prison, some sort of criminal process. They get representation by an attorney, they have a full-blown criminal court hearing or, or trial. Um, they uh, are about, they're able to confront their accusers, they're able to put on witnesses. That's not what happens before somebody's detained in immigration proceedings, uh, or during immigration proceedings. Those people, are detained uh, without that kind of criminal process. They're detained under administrative process while their immigration cases are pending in immigration court or in the federal courts. So these people never got a determination of whether the punishment that they're suffering, the detention, is legitimate, authorized, necessary. And I think in this case, detention is almost a euphemistic term. We think of detention as somehow less troubling than incarceration or prison. But there's no difference for the purpose of some, in, in, from the perspective of somebody who's suffering immigration detention. They're held in, behind bars in our country's jails and immigration prisons. How many people are being detained? Well, it's the fastest growing federal prison population, as I mentioned. Um, the current estimates are that there are about 280,000 immigrant detainees per year, and at, on any given day, 27,000 people are in immigration detention in 400 facilities across the country at a cost of about $1.2 billion per year. So it's a pretty big population. The people who are being detained are about 50% people who don't have any criminal histories and about 50% people who have criminal histories but who have already served their time for their crime. So none of the people are actually serving a sentence. They have, to the extent they have a criminal history, they've already served their sentence. Nevertheless, the public perception of those who are detained and more broadly of immigrants generally is has this, has this sense of linking immigrant to criminal and immigrant to terrorist. And I think both of those public perceptions allow this kind of detention to seem permissible. So the link between immigrant and criminal and this increasing criminalization of immigration policy is something that a lot of commentators are focusing on these days. Um, the public polls also reflect that the American public makes a strong connection between immigrant and criminal, immigrant and terrorist. But needless to say, despite all of this public perception, there, this, this stereotype has no foundation in available statistics. In fact, studies show that immigrant crime rates are dramatically lower than those of demographically similar native-born counterparts and this is true in every ethnic group without exception. So we're talking about a stereotype, not about anything that has any statistical foundation in reality. Uh, unfortunately, congressional and agency action, and by agency I mean the Department of Homeland Security, action on immigration reflects these public perceptions. And so what we've seen is more criminalization of garden variety immigration violations, which previously were not criminal, criminalized, so more people being sort of sucked into the criminal justice system. 
and more reasons in the immigration laws for people to be put in deportation proceedings based on having been convicted of a crime even if they have already served their time for that crime. So you see a real channeling in both directions of more immigrants being put into the criminal justice system and then more individuals who have uh, convictions being put into the immigration system. Um, and this is this link between immigration and crime or the, the false connection between immigration and criminal. There's also more enforcement in immigration com immigrant communities, um, including right here in the Bay Area. Uh, with more raids and more law enforcement presence in immigrant communities. There's again that link that is made in the public between immigrant and criminal. That's why we need the police in the immigrant community because there's a criminal thing going on there. Um, and similar links um, and almost analogous links can be made in the post 9-11 context between immigrant and terrorist. Again, the reason you need uh, law enforcement in communities of color that have been you know, Muslim, Arab, South Asian communities, the reason that law enforcement agents have to go out and conduct voluntary interviews or require uh, immigrants from those from, of South Asian or, or Arab descent to report is again because of this link between immigrant and terrorist in the sense that an increased law enforcement presence in those communities is necessary as part of a war on terror. So all of these different kind of diverse uh, rationales but mainly thematically organized under the stereotype of immigrant equals criminal or immigrant equals terrorist have channeled more and more people into immigration detention because immigration detention is one way in which we can control or the government can control crime in, the way, in which way the gov government can control and prevent terrorist activity. And so the more uh, fear there is of these, that's created by these associations, the more of a justification or rationale there is for channeling more people into immigration detention. There are a lot of tensions created by these large and burgeoning populations of people in immigration detention. Uh, some of them include concerns about conditions of confinement. We've heard stories, as I mentioned, of people being denied medical access, et cetera. But I'd like to focus on a different part of that problem, and that is the question of length of detention. When you talk about people being detained in immigration detention based on uh, <coughs> criminal convictions or based on suggested association with terrorist activity, one question is how long can somebody be held in detention? How long can this kind of detention uh, go on before even the courts or even the government has to concede that what is really being imposed is punishment? It is not simply some sort of administrative detention that's necessary for the immigration authorities uh, to do their job. Immigrants are spending an unprecedentedly long time in detention. And I'm talking months and years in detention. And these are people, again, who never got any criminal trial. So they are in detention, in limbo, waiting for their cases to go through the immigration courts. This is a new thing. Historically, uh, immigration detention uh, was relatively limited in time to the extent it was permitted and it was limited in terms of which population was covered by immigration detention. Very few people were taken into detention for the most part. After 1996 and the fears created by the link between immigrant equals terrorist and immigrant equals criminal, uh, several laws have been passed that have allowed 
the Department of Homeland Security to drastically increase the population of individuals who are in immigration detention. There are more people who are taken into custody now because of old criminal convictions than ever before. And these are really minor convictions like uh, a one-time conviction for fraud or a one-time conviction for selling drugs. Those kinds of relatively minor convictions, again, for which the person served their time, now lands people in immigration detention. And by detention, I mean incarceration, and incarceration often for a very long period of time. So there's a real disproportionality between, even if you assume that someone should serve a period of time in immigration detention, between whatever criminal conviction and the time that they're serving after they've already served the time, uh, the punishment for their crime. What are some limits or what are some questions that these detention policies are, are generating? One of the reasons that immigration detention is an interesting topic is that it's one where the courts have really grappled with the question of even in this context of immigration where the courts generally have stayed out of questioning what Congress decides to do or what the Department of Homeland Security decides to do, at some point when the government is imposing something that really looks and feels like punishment, even the courts are, t are questioning whether that kind of detention or that kind of punishment is permissible. And that's why this topic really presents an area for uh, rich discussion from a legal perspective. It's an area where even within the realm of immigration where things that wouldn't be permissible elsewhere, racial distinctions or distinctions based on race or ethnicity that wouldn't be permissible elsewhere are permitted by the courts or have been permitted by the courts, there is a question about how much or how long somebody can be detained before it really is punishment, before that kind of detention really shouldn't be allowed. Another question that I think this kind of detention raises is what are the limits on the Department of Homeland Security's ability to detain that it should implement? So before the Department of Homeland Security can take someone in, into custody and detain them for a really long period of time, do they have a responsibility that's bounded by the Constitution, required by the Constitution, to limit that detention, to give person, people who are detained some sort of uh, hearings? Should their abilities as an agency be curtailed in some way, and how should we think about that? This is an area that I've been in looking into uh, um, a little bit, and my position would be that given the serious constitutional problems that are raised by immigration detention, the Department of Homeland Security has an independent obligation to make sure that before it subjects someone to long detention, it should make sure that that person really should be subjected to that detention. In other words, it should give that person something similar to a criminal procedure before that they can be detained. I also think that people who are in immigration detention should have the right to a lawyer. Um, they should have a right to a lawyer to challenge their lengthy immigration detention because, again, what is actually being uh, meted out by the Department of Homeland Security is punishment on a day-to-day -day level by the people in detention. So that's a second tension, area of tension, the first being this question of the limits on congressional authority. Another question uh, that immigration detention raises is uh, this idea, it, it challenges this idea of, of concentric 
theories of membership. So there's a sense in immigration law that the longer you get, you come and stay in the United States, the more of an entitlement you have to continue to stay in the United States, and that those concentric circles of membership are reflected in the immigration status that you're given. So when you come in as a a visa, temporary visa holder, you have a temporary right to stay. When you are finally allowed to have a green card, you have a longer right to stay within the United States. And that somehow those immigration categories correspond to permission to stay. Of course, that ignores the undocumented population, many of whom are uh, in people who have stayed here for a very long time and have deep ties despite the fact that they don't have legal status. Uh, what immigration detention does is it really challenges that question of concentric circles. And the way it does this is that because detention is so much close to punishment, there's really a question about whether somebody's immigration status should be relevant in deciding whether that kind of punishment should be meted out. Should we, sub, should we distinguish between somebody who's undocumented and somebody who's a green card holder when we're subjecting them to four years of incarceration in immigration custody? I would say no, it doesn't make a difference. If you're going to subject someone to punishment of that kind, they should be entitled to procedures just like anybody else. And that's another real tension in the law that's, I think, developing um, and hopefully that will be resolved um, by the courts in some sort of positive way in the years to come. The last tension um, that I think the immigration detention policies create relate to the immigrant equals terrorist stereotype. And here, the real way that the uh, fear about a terrorist threat has played itself out is that the Department of Homeland Security and, and previously the Department of Justice have justified long-term detention based on the threat that they say we face um, and, and, that, and, the, and the unprecedented expansion of executive branch power is related to this fear of this threat of, of terrorism. And so the idea is as long as we can create, we can invoke this immigrant equals terrorist uh, fear or threat, we would be able to justify detention, um, which is one of the most severe punishments that the law can impose. And that's what happened after September 11th. We had thousands of individuals taken into custody based primarily on their ethnicity and held in custody for long periods of time under the immigration law's powers. Um, and the, the question ultimately is, does that fear uh, permit that kind of detention? And what kind of process should immigrants get before they're subjected to detention based on a mere guilt by association of terrorist activity? So there are many different tensions in um, thinking about immigration detention policy uh, that arise um, in the current context of this stereotype of immigrant equals terrorist or immigrant equals criminal um, and that, that feed into a justification for long-term immigration detention. I think the tensions that are raised is the longer you have immigration detention, the more you have to ask the question of, is this punishment and should we be treating it as punishment uh, when we subject an immigrant to detention? Thank you. All right, thanks. So I hope we have a lot of questions uh, over here in the hat.
the microphone. Hello. Yes. Um, I'm a Knight Journalism Fellow here at Stanford this year, and so I would really like to get the panelists' thoughts on the media's role in these immigration issues, whether it's um, detainment, which I don't think people really know much about, or the more complex issues of Mexico and countries south of Mexico where people are wanting to come across uh, the border. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of thoughts about Hurricane Katrina and that population. You know, there's a lot of things I could bring in, but specifically I'd like to hear about what you would like to see perhaps the media doing better to um, explain some of these complex issues to the population. And a smaller question within that, since Lou Dobbs has come up quite a bit, do you all think that Lou Dobbs is actually sort of pulling people along with his kind of arguments or he would probably argue he's reflecting what the larger population actually feels about immigration and he's just the voice out there saying it. So do you think that even matters, is, is, whether the dog is wagging the tail or the other way around? Um, so the media's role, I'm actually going to and reinterpret your question a little bit, if that's okay. I mean, one of the things that fascinates me, uh, particularly with respect to race and ethnicity, is that um, media, and I'm really thinking here of kind of, not just news media, but kind of popular culture, um, represents one side of an incredibly ambivalent response to um, immigration. And um, no longer in this country are we, um, are we just looking for kind of workers and not people? We're now looking for workers and consumers, but not people. And so uh, popular culture and the effort to market to the, particularly the Latino population uh, is something that uh, I don't think has gotten enough attention uh, in, in the academic literature, although there's some good work out there, and, and perhaps even in the news media, and how this represents um, a new kind of um, desire, a new economic desire to extract not just labor from immigrants, but their spending, uh, and how that is, um, if it is at all, a kind of counter to the sort of Dobbsian view of immigration that just wants to kind of push it all out. And so, um, so that's one of the things I'd kind of say. And, and um, as far as Lou Dobbs and whether or not he's is he reflecting or is he, um, or is he pulling up along people with him? The first thing I'd like to say about Lou Dobbs, you talk about ambivalence, his wife is Mexican-American. I don't know if, anyway, I just thought that's an interesting little weird tidbit. Um, anyway, um, which of course gives, of course in, in Lou Dobbs' mind, shields him from, from uh, accusations that he's racist. Um, I don't think, you know, if you look at the polling data, again, I think Americans are, are pretty ambivalent. And I think, uh, and, and, and Bill's comments uh, reflected this, that I don't, I don't think, I think this debate's being driven by a few people who are kind of on the extremes. Uh, and I think most Americans are largely in the middle. I think that, the, that uh, polling data reflects that. Uh, and unfortunately, that middle voice seems to get drowned out by folks like, uh, Lou Dobbs, who um, you know has turned his business news program into an opportunity to bash immigrants. So, yeah, no, I, I, I would just be repeating what Tomas is saying, and I agree. Lou, Lou Dobbs is not representing what the majority of the majority of Americans favor legalization for undocumented, poll after poll after poll. Uh, you know, yet he doesn't. You know, he gave voice to the Minutemen 
you know, he had that series, and no, nobody really had heard of the Minutemen that much, you know, until he, he gave them a, a face. And that's what the media ought to be doing, is giving a face to immigrants. I think that the, the types of stories that I gave at the outset are not unusual. They're very common, and, um, and people need to hear that. You know, I, I, I had recently, I, I won't give you the context, but somebody criticized me in something I wrote for being so unrealistic because I was toting a moral line, an ethical line, and they said, well, when does Congress ever act moral, you know, based, on, based on moral or ethics? And you know, to me, that's not actually an excuse to not keep putting that kind of line out there. Uh, at some point, and there are examples, even Congress can do the right thing. But I, I mean, I want to add one thing too, uh, like Tomas's comment, which I sort of agree with, the idea that Lou Dobbs is bashing immigrants, which I think he is, but I saw him say the other day, people say I bash immigrants, but I'm only bashing illegal immigrants. And illegal is, a, of course, a proxy for non-white immigrants coming over the southern border, right? And that's where I think the kind of issue of framing and these kinds of associational uh, yeah, rhetoric. And, you know, I actually, I, I think that's uh, such hogwash when, when people say, oh, it's just the undocumented or illegals. That's simply is not true and it, it came to light this summer when I blame what happened on immigration policy on both the Republican senators from Arizona and I'll explain to you real quickly why. But, uh, but they, Kyle was brought to the table for some strange reason and he was like completely anti any kind of immigrant and part of the compromise he extracted in the compromise that came out of the White House was an attack on family immigration. They had a proposal there to eliminate family immigration that came out of the blue. That wasn't even on the table. And when you attack the family immigration categories, it's then Asians and Latinos, the, the ones that benefit from it. And so it's really BS when they tell you, oh, it's just about undocumented uh, immigration. And the reason I laid some of the blame on McCain as well is because once he ran for president, he backed off from many of the moderate positions that he had taken on immigration. It was the McCain-Kennedy bill a year and a half ago that was the model. And that had an amnesty provision. It didn't have an attack on family. Yes, it had a guest worker thing. But it was a much better starting point than what we ended up with this summer. Okay, over here. are the Mexican population who were here before it was the West mm -hmm. of America. Mm -hmm. And because, I mean, Los Angeles, San Diego, yeah. San Francisco, and all through New Mexico, and in all of this, Texas, all of it. How many Mexicans, how much was the West a Mexican place before it became what we call, you know, America now? Right. So, so the question, just to maybe reinterpret a little bit, is how how many of those, how many of the folks had uh, the border cross them? How many of the folks do not trace their roots to an immigrant population? And actually, I have to say, the gentleman who just handed you the microphone might be the most qualified in the room to tell you that. But and now you can correct me if I'm wrong here. But um, I've seen estimates that range anywhere between 50 and 100,000. Douglas Massey says it's probably no more than 50,000 in the entire Southwest. 
Um, so, you know, I don't think, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think anyone knows for sure, but I, the estimates that I see in the literature go between 50 and 100,000. And what a lot of people say is that, uh, a lot of sociologists point out is that, so, so, well, I would agree with this, is that so the overwhelming majority of people of Mexican descent in the United States today trace their roots to uh, an immigrant population. And, and you can kind of tussle with, you know, whether or not that immigrant population is sort of in some ways a sort of coerced immigrant population or not. But in the sort of conventional legalistic sense, the, the overwhelming majority trace their roots to, to immigrants. And of course, the, the treatment of those 50 to 100,000 people uh, set uh, not, not just a tone for the way people of Mexican descent were treated, particularly through you know, the first 100 years after Guadalupe Hidalgo, but also a, an entire system that in some places in the country looked very much like Jim Crow. Over here. Yeah, I see the, the sort of first two papers uh, presentations as being a little bit in tension with the third, which is if we think about sort of Asians and Latinos and we think of their only sort of relevant comparisons in terms of race to being populations of other immigrants that came, then we can sort of think about, okay, so then the, the principal stereotype becomes perpetual foreigner. And we can understand how that might be driven by ongoing immigration. If we draw the relevant comparisons as being in terms of race, if we think about the relationship between the similar kinds of stereotypes that cross over between Latinos that are similar perhaps to African Americans uh, and Native Americans, right, who are populations that have not had ongoing immigration. So stereotypes of criminality, uh, stereotypes of, you know, laziness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we then think about sort of race very differently, and so the variable of ongoing immigration still cannot sort of predict. So, so African Americans aren't racialized because there's been, they've, they've continued to bring us here from Africa, right? So that, that can't exist. Native Americans, certainly that isn't the case. Um, so what I'm saying is, is that it's interesting to me about how, and, and so the, the third paper to me sort of captures the ways in which other sorts of stereotypes, rather than simply the perpetual foreigner, are visited upon Latinos and Asians and others, such as the terrorists or, for instance, for some Central American migrants, the criminal gangster um, and other kinds of things. And so I'm, I'm, just, I'm just sort of trying to sort of push the, I guess the sort of papers and the sort of scope of thinking about it is, is to, to sort of not focus entirely on racialization as the perpetual foreigner. Um, as well as to not only use European migrants as the relative, relevant comparison group uh, for Mexican migrants. I mean, in some ways, one could compare Mexican migration in, in a project uh, to the migration of sort of African Americans from the south to the north, right? A rural population moving into industrialized cities. Uh, they have a history of being there. They're already a set of stereotypes. I mean, there's a range of different comparisons, and it seems as if there's, there's always a kind of stacked deck to thinking about, in particular, sort of Latinos and race that, that, gets, that gets perpetuated by sort of always using the sort of, you know, Eastern European and Southern European migration reference. Yeah, no, I think, Mark, I think that's a really, uh, that's a really good point. And um, in the kind of expanded version of uh, what I presented, I talk about the kind of tension in the academic literature, and, and I think also in the kind of policy discourse about in particular, people of Mexican descent, and are they more like 
a sort of racialized group like African Americans, or are they sort of like this European immigrant group? Forty-five percent say that Latinos are like African Americans. So yeah, so the so the question I'm trying to raise is how much of that is tied up with being an immigrant? How much uh, are notions of race and what that means tied up with being an immigrant? I mean, there's um, and I again, you know, the I go back to the European origin case, and I know you're 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 suggesting uh, that, that there might be other cases to look at. Um, because, you know, when we talk about the sort of dominant experience, particularly for people of Mexican descent in the United States today, it is that of an immigrant population. Uh, and that's an immigrant, and, and so to me that's the sort of relevant thing. The other huge difference, uh, I think, is uh, between particularly Native Americans uh, and African Americans and Latinos is that, um, you know, the history of slavery, I think, figures prominently, uh, and, and people of Mexican descent uh, have never experienced anything that approaches uh, slavery um, for that, like like it was for the African American population. And then with Native Americans, I mean, you know, um, you're talking about a sort of systematic eradication of a population, and and people of Mexican descent have not experienced that. And so, um, in some ways, what I'm trying to do, and I, and again, I use this compare in, in the manuscript I'm working on. What I'm trying to do is move away from the kind of black-white analogy. Are they kind of like this? Or are they kind of like that? And I'm saying that there's something else altogether, and it's a population that is perpetually uh, struggling with. Um, with the, the experience of immigration, with the experience of integrating into a new society, uh, and a population that can never kind of claim the mantle of an American ethnic group because that is reserved for populations whose, um, whose immigration is behind them, whose notions of foreignness are behind them. And, and immigration, uh, I think, um, sort of represents a delay in that. Yeah, you know, different people have different motivations for, for doing the same thing. Right, and and so I, I, and that applies to evildoers as well. And so, uh, you know, some I use the word license. I I actually do think that some people, based on their perceived experiences with immigrants, use that as their license to to de-Americanize or to engage in racism. Other people, they don't need that to engage in racism. Uh, and one example, very few people, of course, disaggregate among Asian American groups. Uh, but the Japanese internment experience, whenever we read about it, it's often depicted as being the result of perpetual foreignness that was visited on Japanese Americans, when in fact the vast majority of those who, who were interned were American citizens. And so I, part of my response to you is, I think it would have happened anyway, you know, whether or not they, some. Some, some of the evildoers had foreignness in mind uh, just because Japanese were part of the other. Uh, but I certainly would be uh, deluding myself if I didn't think that some people are capable of engaging in racism against groups that are predominantly foreign-born without the foreign-bornness. If I could just build on that, I think that there's, there are multiple reasons here. So there's this undeniable link between reasons for different uh, 
criminal penalties like the war on drugs, et cetera, and that, that spillover effect into the immigration arena. But then there's the question of when do you meet out the punishment of expulsion? And you meet out the punishment of expulsion against those who are visitors in the country, right? So there's definitely kind of both of those uh, motivations behind that behavior, both the, both the kind of context, but then also the way that that community is viewed um, legally and in, in, in immigration policy. Tom? Um, I guess this is more of a quick comment, but I, I think it's, it's perfect. It's, it's, oh, thanks. <laughs> um, I, I think, geez, I feel like Oprah here. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's really important to make these comparisons, you know, and I think it's perfectly appropriate and, and, and critical, in fact, to, to look at um, uh, non-European immigrant populations and compare them to immigrant populations. I think the problem where we run into problems is when we misunderstand the European immigrant history, you know, and for so long that history has been seen as, oh, well, they just came here and they worked hard and they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And all the whiteness historians have generally complicated that story. But I think, you know, this, this focus on the fact that they had to become white and they, they, they struggled so deeply with all this deeply racialized discrimination, um, that's often, while people like Jacobson and Rodiger have been pretty good about saying, listen, when we say they face discrimination, it was nothing like stuff that people of color face. Um, even though they've been good about nuancing their work, I think when, when people talk about it in, outside of academia, it's often the same old story about, you know, they, they worked really hard. They were, they've, not only did they face discrimination, they weren't white. You know, they weren't white and they had to become white only through hard work. And so, in other words, I, I think we're still m deeply misunderstanding the European immigrant story. And, um, and I think, for instance, just quickly, um, you know, talk, taking the Mexican immigrant experience seriously and making the comparison, I mean, there's just no, there's no comparison between those experiences. Um, the, the, the European immigrants faced very, I mean, they faced discrimination, they were racialized, but they were accepted as white by and large, and then, and therefore benefited greatly from that experience. And, and if that's, if, if you understand that, then I do think that some of these, um, these uh, comparisons can be very helpful. But, but, but if you start with a misunderstanding of, of the European immigrant experience, I think you're heading in the wrong direction. Someone yeah. over here. Oh, I'll just say really quickly, so I mean my comparison is really between the later generation Mexican Americans and the later generation European origin groups. Um, and you know, you can kind of tick off boxes and kind of who had it worse and, and who had it better, you know. Um, we live in a sort of post-civil rights policy era where, you know, racial and ethnic discrimination is, is illegal. That certainly didn't exist in the past, although we live in an era where, um, you know, uh, the nature of immigration policy has made it such that, um, you know, for particularly Latino immigrants and within that Mexican immigrants um, are forced to come here without documentation and so that makes things sort of worse in the past. So anyway, I mean you can kind of, um, you know, have a sort of competition, a perverse competition to see who had it worse, but um, anyway, maybe we should talk about that after. All right, uh, over here. <clears throat> Taking the um, immigrant replenishment process effect as given, I wonder if there might be other functional equivalents. So for example, what role would world historical events have on one's sense of identity or degree of assimilation versus foreignness? So let's take 
a European population you didn't mention, which is Jewish immigration mm -hmm. into yeah. the United States. I mean, we end up having World War II and the Holocaust, Zionism and the creation of Israel, the Six-Day War, a whole set of very major events that are related to claims on identity right. and in-group, out-group distinctions happen without it being a process of continual immigration replenishment. But there's certainly self-consciousness activation going mm -hmm. on. Um, which it strikes me could have similar effects to immigration replenishment. And I'm wondering, whether do you view, for example, the American Jewish population as symbolic ethnicity, equivalent to the Italian or Irish population? Or do you think that there's something interestingly different about that particular group's experience and their consciousness or identification or commitment to um, the perpetuation, let's say, of group identity? That, that's a really uh, interesting question, and, and you're inviting me to, to um, sort of go into a territory that uh, I feel unqualified to speak about. But nonetheless, that, that never stops an academic, right? Um, um, no, I think it's a really good question. And, you know, there, there, um, there's actually a historical equivalent. I mean, you know, the, the sort of division between um, um, German Jews and then Eastern European Jews at the turn of the century and the tensions that existed, the sense among the sort of entrepreneurial German Jews that the, the Eastern European Russian Jews were going to kind of give us all a dirty name, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, I think certainly um, world events matter, I would say, to kind of come back to the Mexican origin case, you'd be um, disappointed, perhaps shocked, about how little later generation Mexican Americans know about what goes on in Mexico. Um, so there, there's sort of not an equivalent there, and, and I think, um, you know, um, the Jewish population in the United States, um, you know, has shown um, remarkable kind of socioeconomic assimilation, and some people would argue even, um, even sort of identity assimilation. I mean, some, uh, and I'm, I'm, um, I think I'm remembering this right, but somewhere in the range of 50% of all Jews marry a non-Jew, and that's a significant indicator of of assimilation. So I think there are some analogies. Again, I think your the, the ties to an ethnic homeland might make um, the Jewish case particularly unique in the way that it's set up and the relationship with the United States. But again, I feel like I'm sort of. Uh, Do you have any idea in that, in that case of, of marriage whether or not the person is not Jewish and some high percentage I don't know. I don't know. I mean, anecdotally, I know families that are, you know, kind of raising these dual. Uh, religious identity children? Um, uh, I, I don't know. That's, that's a really good question. I actually think that the era in which we live today is an important aspect of some of what you're writing about, Tomas, and, and the effect on identity. I was, because your question triggered uh, something. Recently, I read a paper on the development of the Vietnamese American community, and, and there was a pretty convincing argument that was made by the person who wrote that paper that given the social aspects of globalization, not the non-economic aspects of globalization and transnationalism, that in fact the, the, the fact that of, of U.S. empire and the effect on Vietnamese on both sides of the ocean, the fact of anti-communism that was felt sort of in a nationalistic way from the people that are here, and um, the third factor was something that I'm forgetting. But uh, they, that in fact, the way we are set up internationally today, that has a great deal to do with how people identify themselves. And, and I actually think that there's application to that. I'm sure you're familiar with the literature, Tomas, between 
Mexican migrants whose families are really kind of evenly divided in location between the United States and their villages in Mexico, and how really there, there are our grandparents and, and older people that, that are consulted, irrespective of which side of the border they're on, uh, because of the ability to communicate and that type of thing. And that, that, the modern era actually is affecting in different ways the experience of people that came in much earlier generations, I think. So I think we're done. Okay, thanks for coming. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.